As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello? Hi, Mr. Stein. Yes. Hi, it's Kaylee Rogers calling from Motherboard. Kaylee, hi. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks so much for taking some time to chat with me. Uh, My pleasure. I know that uh, right now is particularly busy for you, so it means even more. A little insane. (laughs) Hey, guys. It's Kaylee Rogers here. I'm a staff writer at Motherboard. I'm kind of taking over the mic this week from your regular host, Jason Kebler, because we're getting ready for our big theme week on fear next week called All in Your Head. What you just heard at the top there was the very beginning of my conversation with Goosebumps author R.L. Stein, who I'm sure you remember from your childhood and the 90s. We're going to cut back and listen to a little bit more of that. How is everything going? How does it feel to... Uh... Uh, you know, I'm running around like a fool. <laughs> <laughs> just talking about myself day and night. It's a heavy burden, Kaylee. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it must be a little uh, bit of a trip to, to have this whole film and to, to see somebody else well, yeah. playing you. I mean, it took him 23 years. <laughs> That's how long I've been doing Goosebumps. It took 23 years to do the movie, <laughs> so it's pretty exciting. And then, you know, you never dream you'll be a character in a film, for God's sake. <laughs> so that's pretty great. Now, Jack is terrific. He's really he's a he's a much more sinister version of me. <laughs> Do you think that he captured the essence of you of you as a character? No, not at all. <laughs> no, he's nothing like me. <laughs> so we're... what do you mean you're taking over, Kaylee? <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. We had to cut it there because there were technical difficulties with my recording. So if you want to know more about what R.L. Stein had to say to me, you're going to have to read my story on our interview, which is going to be on the web. And this is not a ploy. I actually just am really bad with technology and ruin the recording. Yeah, Kaylee was very, very sad when she recorded this. She trusted me to give her my Skype equipment to record it. 
And about a minute and a half in, it started going all staticky, which is because Kaylee didn't pay for the uh, software, which I have on my computer, and I didn't even think that there was a free version, and she was very, very upset afterwards, understandably. But thankfully, the whole uh, interview will be on motherboard.vice.com, which you can check out probably Tuesday, Wednesday, early next week. Definitely, yes. So welcome to the show. Uh, As I said, I'm Kaylee Rogers. We're here with Jason Kebler. Hi. And we have a special guest this week. We've got Naomi Bishop. Is that right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> we got Naomi Bishop. She's a contributor to the site, and she has a pretty cool story for us for Fear Week, so we wanted to chat with her a bit about that. Let's just start off with talking about Fear Week and everything that everyone can expect from it, because it's going to be pretty dope. We have a lot of great stories coming up. Um, I'm working on a story about fear and sort of the, the point of fear in the modern day. Uh, Obviously, as an instinct, it made a lot of sense when we were living outdoors and had to protect ourselves from poisonous snakes and spiders and things. And now that we have such a comfortable modern life, it seems kind of crazy that we are afraid of everything, like spiders and the dark and roller coasters and things that can't necessarily hurt us. So I've been talking to a lot of really smart neuroscientists and people like that about why we still have fear, how it sort of develops, and and what we know about it. It was just another Tuesday on Fear Street. I was going to visit my buddy Fred. He'd had some kind of accident and hadn't been to school for a whole week. Did you guys read Goosebumps when you were kids? Yeah, of course. Uh, Absolutely. I think it was the first chapter book I ever read. (laughs) Do you guys remember, like, any of your favorite ones? I distinctly remember the, the, like, ghost piano one there was like ghost hands that played the piano or something i i just remember that because i played the piano as a kid so yeah i remember that i really liked i forget what it's called i forget what they're all called but i really like say cheese and die i know that was a <laughs> uh the title of one which is about a haunted camera in which you took a picture of someone and then it showed them as basically like a skeleton who's about to die um, and I really like the amusement park one as well. Which, the choose your own adventure one. Well, I think there's a choose your own adventure oh. and also a regular one because that one was really popular. So I think he actually went back years later and wrote like a series of other books about. I think it's called Horrorland. I forget. It had a really imaginative name like Horrorland. Um, and I know this because I Wikipedia Goosebumps earlier today. Um, <laughs> I did not know that he actually went back in like 2013 and wrote some more Goosebumps books. Oh, he's still writing them. Yeah, I didn't know that. I guess you did because you just talked to him. Yes, he still writes Goosebumps regularly. He recently revived Fear Street, which you may or may not remember was like the preteen, like high school, a little more mature version of Goosebumps um, because a bunch of people on Twitter asked him to. So he he did. Um, but yeah, he's still writing tons of books. Like he's written hundreds of books now and he said that it's like even more fun now because he's running out of ideas (laughs) i was looking at his uh bibliography earlier and this guy was putting out like 14 books a year like it is totally crazy he was putting out like two books a month for Mm -hmm. a while there in like 1994 1995 which granted they're only like 120 pages each but those are distinct characters distinct you know plots and imagery and all that sort of thing and he was actually pretty good at writing characters, I felt. Like, his characters were different, if I remember correctly. Um, it's funny you say that, because he and I both kind of came to the conclusion that his characters are not very well developed. 
and he said that that was because he wanted the kids to be able to put themselves in the book as much as possible. So rather than going into like a lot of description about like Susie had, you know, like very nosy and ambitious and had blonde hair, he would just kind of make it kind of plain so that the Susie could be anyone. Susie could be you, Jason. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I guess when I said well-developed, I, <laughs> so earlier today, uh, my friend Sophie Gilbert, who is a writer at The Atlantic, um, I am me and said, you really like Goosebumps, right? Which is pretty serendipitous <laughs> that I have in right now. And I said, yes. And she said, uh, do you remember how he wrote the female characters? And I just seem to remember them being like always braver than the guys. And um, he he didn't really like dwell on it very much, which was very good. Um, so that's why I bring that up because I just remember, you know, I always remember the characters in the books being braver than I was as a kid. And I especially remember like the girls in the books being really brave and he didn't make, he didn't like dwell on that for any length of time, which is good. Yeah. It, we were talking about, he said that his audience uh, throughout the nineties was evenly split between girls and boys, which was always felt like a success to him because a lot of educators and teachers and stuff would come to him and say like, you know, before Goosebumps, we couldn't get the boys in our class interested in reading. Like it just wasn't, as common for boys to be big readers as it was for girls and Goosebumps kind of was a, a way into that for for a lot of young boys growing up so yeah um so what do you think of Jack Black as R.L. Stein? he mentioned you know he doesn't really think that uh Jack Black was kind of like him I guess in the movie which I haven't seen the movie yet but um from what I hear it's from the trailer, it doesn't seem like it's going to be very good, and I don't think it's gotten great <laughs> reviews, but I still will see it at some point. But I just see Jack Black, and I'm like, oh, that's not R.L. Stein. No. And it's funny because I guess I guess the movie was never really intended to actually be R.L. Stein. It was supposed to be kind of this creepier, more sinister version of him, so that's sort of what Jack Black did, and R.L. Stein is happy with the results. He said he, he likes the movie. It turned out great, but it's not really anything like him but it, I thought that it was interesting because R.L. Stein was actually like such a delight and like a really fun person to talk to and maybe I'm just like fangirling out because I really enjoyed his books as a kid but I think he would have made a good movie character just as himself. I mean I think a lot of horror writers are like that. I saw Stephen King on I guess it was the Colbert show. I believe he was on Colbert or he was on really one recently. of yeah he was either on that or the Daily Show near the end but yeah it was Colbert and he was you know really funny and lighthearted and i think that a lot of horror writers are kind of like that um and rl stein said he didn't want to scare children right or i saw an article about that today which everyone's doing their rl stein articles because of goosebumps <laughs> but kaylee's is going to be the best yeah i wasn't doing it because the movie i was doing it because we already were going to do all in your head which is our great fear week so anyway uh i mean he he did that's not exactly what he told me. He told me that he did want to scare kids, but it's sort of a fine line between scaring them in a fun way where they, you know, it's enjoyable and exciting and fun to read and like crossing the line and being too much for like an eight-year-old to take in, but also like, you know, kind of finding that balance because if you're not scary enough, then they're, they're going to think it's lame and they won't want to read it and they'll just think it's baby stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think... Goosebumps was perfect for that because I don't remember ever having like nightmares because of Goosebumps 
and I had nightmares because of everything when I was a kid. <laughs> I was scared of absolutely everything. Um, but I also don't remember thinking like this is for babies and uh, I guess job well done. I would I would need to go back and read some. It's been I probably read like maybe one or two in middle school and then all the rest when I was in elementary school. Um, so it's been quite a while. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. Naomi, do you remember any of your favorite Goosebumps from back in the day? Not at all, and that's why I haven't been chiming in. It just completely escapes my memory, maybe because it was a little too scary for me. I'm scared of everything also, and so I think when things are really terrifying, we tend to kind of compartmentalize them in our heads. So maybe it'll come up in 10 years or something, these memories, but not now. You've blocked out Goosebumps. Blocked it out completely. Too scary for me. Yeah, maybe I have too, but... uh, I always remember Are You Afraid of the Dark being way scarier, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's been a while since I've seen that as well. But that definitely did give me nightmares. Mm -hmm. Or Unsolved Mysteries. Did you guys watch Unsolved Mysteries? Oh my god, Unsolved Mysteries is the best show. (laughs) So good. I, fun fact, have the entire series in a box set. We know where we're going this weekend. That's (laughs) shaped like a treasure chest. (laughs) We should go back and watch all the Unsolved Mysteries and see how many have been solved with like the help of the internet. Yeah, we could do that. Some of them were not solvable, though. Some of them were like the ghost of old Mary Jane Lane, and like. Yeah, I like those ones the best because they were <laughs> the scariest. I watched that one. I like actually wanted to be scared. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that we all want to be scared sometimes too. You know. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think that is? You... Well, I don't know. Maybe because in the past, evolutionarily, like fear definitely had a huge role. And then now, since we don't really have much of a need for fear, except for like maybe when you put your hand on a hot stove, you know to pull it away. And we don't have, you know, predators chasing after us. We create fear, right? So like uh, that's why our evolutionary uh, instinct for fear has gotten completely haywire. I think we end up like looking for it in almost every way we can whether it's entertainment and fun or whether we like have developed phobias and things like that mm-hmm. mm. that's a really interesting thing about mankind in general i think and technology because our technology and just you know industrialization has kind of gotten rid of a lot of these primal things that we are hard-coded to feel um, but obviously evolution of a species takes a really long time mm-hmm. usually especially when it's a human um but so we are like evolutionary evolutionarily hardwired to feel fear but we don't need to and uh that's the subject of your story right Kaylee? Mm -hmm, exactly so it's yeah we've got these kind of ancient hardwires that we're born with like literally babies some of the first few things that they can do is like recognize a face and be scared of a snake like it's these innate instincts that are are just in our brains as humans and we've taken that sort of necessary reaction that used to keep us alive and now have morphed <laughs> into this weird problem that we kind of have. It's, you know, anxiety disorders and phobia problems and fear disorders plague a lot of people. And then you also have people that are, you know, thrill seekers that are like jumping off of cliffs because they just want to feel alive for a second. And it's this weird kind of balance between um, evolution and, and the, the modern day and sort of what the use of that fear is. So you talked to an expert about this, right? What, what did they have to say? I mean, were you just paraphrasing them then? Or? Yeah, I mean, I talked to a few experts about it. I thought it was interesting to hear. I mean, I learned a lot about how the, the brain sort of processes and creates fears, which is interesting because it's one of the few emotions that we have studied a lot and know a lot about partly because it's such a universal 
instinct we can we can observe it in a lot of animals you know it's hard to tell if a rat is happy or not but you can pretty much guess if it's scared based on the sort of behavior that it's exhibiting and so we do know a lot about it and still we 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 don't know everything even as recently as two years ago there was a study that showed that the amygdala which we always thought was kind of like the fear center in the brain is not necessary for every kind of fear stimuli so this researcher did an experiment with individuals who either had damaged or missing amygdalas and had them breathe oxygen that was sort of like tainted with carbon monoxide. And it set off this panicked instinct in them that they never experienced before because they normally don't experience fear because they don't have an amygdala. And he kind of showed that you can still have fear if it's, you know, going through a different route other than, you know, showing them a scary face or a, a snake or something like that. Yeah, and I think, I don't know. So we're going to read, uh, <laughs> no, in a few minutes, we're going to read some uh, of our listeners' um, biggest fears or like the scariest thing that's ever happened to them and that sort of thing. And I just remember being a kid and I remember being scared of everything, um, as I already mentioned. But I was specifically scared of ghosts and like uh, mirrors uh, per- because of like... <laughs> of your own reflection? No, because- <laughs> Have you guys heard of Bloody Mary? Do you like yeah, know? Yeah. yeah. So like when I was in first grade, someone told me if you say Bloody Mary into the mirror three times, a witch comes out of the mirror and kills you. Did you ever try? Of course not. Absolutely not. <laughs> Actually, after I heard that, I didn't take a shower for like a week. I swear. I like would and I went to the one bathroom in my house that didn't have a mirror to like use the bathroom and I wouldn't shower and it was like a problem. Um, I was you know like six years old, and obviously like kids grow out of these fears of like the supernatural all the time and i'm sure there are people who are still like scared of ghosts and witches and things like that but um the story i'm gonna write this week is kind of just like a personal essay narrative thing i don't really know what to call it but it's about how i used to be scared of all these things and then as you grow up like actual bad things start happening to you and it's like you are scared of you know robbers and you're scared of like getting beat up or you're scared of you know having a heart attack or a stroke or something and you know uh like growing up and just seeing people who are close to you die or get sick or you know watching my grandfather go through alzheimer's are things that i'm now scared of and when i watch like a ghost movie i don't get scared at all i mean it's something it's something like oh i might jump at the time but it's and i still will play along and think it's fun to watch but I don't get these like horrifying nightmares and I'm not like scared of walking in the basement in the dark anymore. Um, which I don't know, maybe there could be like a person down there sometime, but uh, <laughs> the boogie monster. Yeah. But like, I'm not scared of these supernatural things anymore. And I think, I don't know where that fits in like evolutionarily, but I just think it's interesting that, you know, I used to go to like a haunted house when I was younger and would, be truly scared for my life and now I'm like oh this is stupid I know what to actually be scared of and it's like getting hit by a bus on my bike or something like that you know this is so depressing no I don't I don't want to dwell on it but it's just it's no it's like something that that I think happens to everyone like as they grow up and your story is about dealing with death correct yes but the funny thing is piggybacking off what you said Actually, I'm really scared of scary movies and anything that's a representation of fear, like in the news or in on TV or anything like that. But when it comes to real-life fear and things that are really scary that a lot of people, I think, couldn't stomach, 
I'm somehow okay with that. I don't know. Maybe it's because I can separate myself from the thing that I'm actually viewing or that I'm going through. And maybe I prepare myself mentally. But when it comes to a scary movie, like I'll have nightmares for four days. But in Taraja, which is what my story is about, um, the dead live in people's houses up to, you know, 10 years after they've actually died because they're considered sick um, or sleeping until they have a proper funeral, which is like up to $500,000, so it can take years and years and years. Um, And I ended up sleeping in a house with a corpse. Um, And that first, like, I thought I was going to be terrified. I was so spooked before I had, like, mentally prepared myself in every way I could And then when I got there, yeah, I screamed for the first second. But then after like half an hour, an hour, it was kind of anticlimactic, you know, which is totally the opposite reaction that I thought I'd have in that kind of situation. So take us back a step and tell us about your story. So you went to Indonesia, right? Yeah, I grew up in Indonesia um, for the first nine years of my life. And then I've only been back a couple times since then because of political family reasons. And so... For this story, you went to a specific region where this custom is carried out. So when you say the dead live in people's houses, you're talking about actual human corpses are kept in the home. And what do they do with them? How do they treat them? How do they keep them indoors? Yeah, what's like the top levels? Like if you're you're telling someone about this story for the very first time, because I'm sure many of our listeners haven't heard of this. I've never heard of it before I saw your story. So what, what did you write about? So what I wrote about was uh, this specific region called Tana Taraja Sulawesi, which is in the highland of Indonesian island, which is an octopus-shaped island called Sulawesi. And it's about eight or nine hours away from the capital. And in this one part, there are a lot of different villages, maybe you know 20 different villages. And in each village, uh, there are deeply rooted animist beliefs that make a person or that that enables the society to f- govern itself in such a way where death is actually the main event on everyone's calendar so that um, people basically live to die there. They save up money their entire lives just to be able to afford a proper funeral, to buy enough pigs for other people's funerals or buffaloes, um, to buy their death clothes. Like you'll meet 20-somethings that are they're like, oh, here are my burial clothes, you know. Um, and it's a culture that's just completely... I mean, it's definitely a culture of life, but at the same time, the most celebrated event is a person's death. So um, it can take a really long time to be able to afford a proper burial ceremony. So sometimes, in this particular case, this woman, Indolai, who I met, um, she's nobility in Tana Taraja. For nobility, you have to slaughter a minimum 24 uh, buffaloes. So... Uh, 24 to 150, sometimes up to 500. And so that takes a lot of time to be able to save up enough money to be able to do that. So she was dead for three years. Um, And the way that they keep the dead people alive, or not alive, but the way they keep them um, sort of not smelling and not decaying is by embalming them, right? So even though it's kind of hot in Indonesia, um, and it's a little cooler in the mountains there, there's... um, they they inject them with uh, formalin, and that mixture ends up embalming them so that they look green. They don't look brown or gray or 
blue or purple the way you might imagine a dead person, just a little glossy and green. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and what they end up doing with the people is that they they stay in the bedroom. So they actually have their bedroom in the south side of the traditional houses because south is the direction of the land of souls is what they believe. And they keep them there in a bedroom, just like, you know, having your sick grandmother there. And you feed her uh, twice a day, lunch and dinner, a bowl of rice and uh, water. So it's not like you force feed them or anything. It's symbolic. But at the same time, you still have to buy the rice to feed them. And this can last for a really long time. So it's kind of this peculiar culture that I got really interested in. I was like, I have to go there. Um, I'm writing a book right now about my parents. And I was like, I can't. I'm so freaking scared of death that, like, I think the only way to be able to write about this sincerely is to actually go there and literally look at it in the face. I'm just curious. So did it help you sort of confront your fear and discomfort with death to be so close and intimate with it? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm still kind of working that out in my (laughs) head um, just because this was about a month ago, right? So I think these things take a little while to settle in. But when I was there, I... I actually was very much at peace, which is strange. Like, as I was going through, like, so every village has um, a cave where dead bodies are just piled haphazardly in coffins that are broken. So there's human skeletons and, like, bones and sticks and stones and rodents kind of just, like, roaming about in these in these caves. And I thought that I was going to be really, really scared um, and that it was going to just sort of sensitize my panic and fear of death but instead when I was there at one point I remember just lying down in one of the caves and I felt more relaxed than I have in like two years in I don't under I don't understand how I don't know why I really don't know where that uh, reaction came from in me it's very unlike me but then um, when I came back at night after experiencing these things and seeing like you know either the caves or the death rituals or the funeral um I, I did get spooked, you know, so I did have to have like a gin or tonic, a gin and tonic or two, <laughs> like every night actually, <laughs> as I was writing down what was happening. And um, I got scared after the fact, I guess. Do you think that being around people who were so comfortable with death was helpful, um, both now and in kind of being in the moment or, or what? Yeah, I think we in the Western world have a really uh, interesting view of death, which is, you know, to put it away as fast as possible. And the reason I say it's interesting is because we think it's the norm, but if you look historically, it's actually not the norm. Um, and in Indonesia, in specifically in Taraja, people, yes, they, they're used to the human body and the corpse and things like that, but what I really learned was that no matter what, no matter where you are in the world, death is equally terrifying. So whether you're preparing yourself for 10 years after the person's already died or you have no time because they have terminally, you know, they're terminally ill with cancer and have a month to live, I don't think there's any way to actually prepare yourself. Like I saw people mourning, wailing over, you know, their three, their grandmother who had died three years ago Mm -hmm. as if it was just yesterday. Um, So in that sense, I don't know if sort of a prolonged grieving process prolongs denial or if it actually does help you appreciate life in this moment more. Yeah, I have so many questions about like (laughs) this period in between when they die and the official funeral. Um, I'm I'm interested what what happens at the funeral? Like, is it once a funeral actually happens, do they kind of just get rid of the body or put it in this cave or bury it or what happens to it? 
Right. So a funeral is complicated. It's called the Rambu Solo, and it, it's a death feast is what it's called. And it lasts anywhere from three to ten days, sometimes in animus villages, because uh, there's a lot of different religions. Christianity is predominant there, but there's also a bunch of animus villages. They can last up to a month because you have to have everyone in your family gather and come. So you might have relatives in you know America and they have to come. So these death feasts, the, the first day, there's um, a group of very beautifully dressed women in beaded outfits um, collectively waving a red sash. And so you walk with that and then the coffin's behind and you walk to the ceremonious field where, um, you know, the coffin is presented and then all of these wild animals scurry about. There's a lot of buffalo that's brought as gifts. There's a lot of um, pigs and a lot of laughter and a lot of dancing and a lot of singing. Um, and so that's day one, right? And then so this goes on for multiple days. The second day, they actually slaughter the pigs and buffalo in front of everybody. So there's blood splurting everywhere. And it's, you know, that lasts until the last buffalo is killed. Uh, they don't kill all the buffaloes. Um, they sell some of them. But what ends up happening is like people uh, will take like they'll take shots of the of the buffalo blood. It'll spurt everywhere. And then they have these little tubes made out of bamboo and young boys will be catching these little um, shots of blood and then downing them, you know, because they feel like the buffalo leads you to um, the afterlife. And that's the only way that you can get there. So it's very, very gory. Um, it's very giddy. People are smiling, laughing, dancing. And then uh, the last day, it's very sad. I mean, it's, it's people are crying. They're, well, I saw one woman faint um, from grief, you know, even though the grandmother had died three years ago. Uh, you, so they, they also carry the coffin around dancing to the cave or wherever they're actually going to bury the coffin. And they're dancing, dancing in this way that you just, like, to me, seemed kind of sacrilegious because it was just, like, I don't know what's happening to that body up there. I mean, is it breaking? <laughs> you know, like, what? You could drop it. So they're going through the village like that, and then they go to um, these caves, these designated caves, and it takes three or four months to uh, burr out a little hole to be able to put the coffin in. So the higher your social status, the higher up in the cave you'll actually be buried. Um, so we actually saw one go up about two or 300 feet uh, in the, on this cliff. And someone actually died bringing a coffin all the way to the very top God. last year. Um, so, like, they had to have two funerals, you know, <laughs> um, which was really sad. But it's just part of the tradition that stays alive no matter what. Even though animism isn't the prevailing religion anymore, it's Christianity, it's still uh, practiced everywhere. Like, you cannot have a proper send-off. Um, without having this sort of ritual. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, I will let you ask questions in a minute, but I have so <laughs> many. Um, so how is the date for the funeral selected? Is it like once they have enough money? Because, I mean, if you have enough money already for whatever reason, maybe they lived a really long life or they were noble, is it something where they die and then they have this thing, you know, the next day? Or is there always a certain waiting period? Because you said up to 10 years sometimes. Yeah, they, they set the date um, once they've had, once everything has been gathered. So once, like I said, the buffalo and, you know, the money and once they can build the houses. And I think there's a, a calendar that they go by. But there's also a funeral season. So I happened to go during funeral season. We were invited to like six funerals when we were there. Um 
But funeral season is July and August, so most funerals will be July, August, or September. And so the date is picked based on when the most people can, can come, and that's usually during those months. And then how do family members treat uh, the bodies, say, you know, during this period of purgatory? I mean, is it considered purgatory or like, does anything that happens in between the time they actually die and the funeral, like, does that come out during the funeral? Like if there's a eulogy or something, I'm not sure if there is, but it's like, oh, remember that time you were dead and we fed you and your arm fell over and like knocked it over the bowl of rice? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, I, I mean, is this considered like an extension of their life, like this waiting period? Or is it, you know, they're, they're gone um, and then we just have their body? Like, what, what, what do they consider it during this interim period? That's a really interesting question because, you know, like during the eulogy of Indolai, I actually, it was in local tongue, and so I couldn't really understand a lot of it, but I didn't ask that specific question. Now I really wish I had. And I guess I can still ask my guide, but... Uh, all I do know is that um, their souls are thought to be in the village. So it's not like it's in the body anymore. It's in the village. And then it's it has to rise to Puya. So it's somewhere between the village and Puya. And the buffalo bring uh, brings the actual spirit from the village up to, you know, what they consider the heavens or land of souls. Right. Yeah, I suppose that was a long way of asking, you know, do they speak to the body in between and like treat it like a family member and oh yeah no it's definitely like a a part of the family it's a family member I think deep down inside some must know uh, like the daughter of Indolai for example I think deep down inside she knew that her her mother was actually dead um, and not just sick but at the same time I think that a lot of people allow themselves to have this extra time to be Mm -hmm. able to you know interact with them and talk like one of the women at the funeral one of the daughters actually said you know I'm really really sad because I'm not going to be able to talk to her anymore Um, once you know the first buffalo slaughtered and she's considered dead and she's officially dead she's not going to be in my life anymore and you know for me that was mind-boggling because I just imagine if I had kept my father's body in like midtown Manhattan and fed him a couple times a day and you know like gave him water and talked to him not to make a mockery out of it but just to see like how absolutely different our cultures are yeah. you know and then they take it onto a whole other level which is that there's a festival called Manene and it's every August but Uh, families if you really really love like let's say you loved your grandmother and you really can't stand the thought of not being able to talk to her again you can actually dig her up from the the gate the grave and exhume her and then give her like groom her bathe her in the river walk her through town um and there are certain animist beliefs where you where people have seen people walking um without help through town like so dead bodies walking through their villages without any assistance whatsoever but what's more common is a person actually helping them um, combing their hair and so you'll see corpses that have been dead for you know 20 30 years dress in new sundresses or in new pants and I mean some of the photos in my article are of that festival and that's completely wild to me you know because I started thinking, would I want to do that? Like, would I want to unearth my mom and dad um, so that I could just see them one more time or or not? And, you know, my answer was no, but I, I don't know. I guess it's nice to have the choice there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that there's a lot more we're wondering about, but 
we should probably read the article, which will be up on Motherboard next week during All in Your Head. And, of course, the photos, which is probably the best part because you yeah. get to actually see what you saw firsthand. So Yeah, Aaron Perky, my boyfriend, actually took a lot of the photos. So it was just very much like we were there. I was consuming like all of the thoughts and the ideas. And then he uh, took all the photos. So we had two separate but both equally visceral experiences. So mm-hmm. you'll get to see both of them. Kaylee, I have more questions. <laughs> well, you'll have to read the article and get the answers there. Can I ask one more <laughs> really, really quick question? D- do they have a problem with people like racing towards death in any way? Because you said that people bought, um, you know, clothes to be buried in. Do they have a problem with people like with suicide or anything like that? Or is it a very natural pr- process usually? It's usually a very, very natural process. I don't think suicide is that common there, although I did see the skulls of what they call their Romeo and Juliet. So they're two rivaling uh, noble families 20 years ago that killed themselves and then their skeletons are inside a cave like you can bring a lantern in and find them that's the only big suicide that yeah. I know of okay thank you thank you Kaylee, for <laughs> allowing one extra bonus question <laughs> against the rules we're gonna round things out by telling some spooky stories that are true true spooky stories that happened to us we actually solicited our Twitter followers to send us some stuff. So a few people wrote back and we have a few examples here. I liked this one. So somebody who goes by the Twitter handle Iberianat Iberianate? I don't know. It's that guy is his name. Uh, sent a series of tweets that sounded spooky. So he said he was cleaning out his 90-year-old father-in-law's backyard and found some old hospital tools from the small town where he lived, I guess, uh, when the hospital closed in the 50s, so he decided to donate them to the town museum, put the old tools in the back seat to deliver, and when he drove by the old hospital, which is now apartments, all of the tools flew out of the box and stuck to the back window like magnets until we passed far enough by. Uh, so then he pulled over and dumped them on the street and never saw them again. I thought that was a pretty spooky story. That is spooky, very poltergeisty. <laughs> Uh, Tomahawk2020 said, phone call from Illuminati asking me to join their society. When I said no, I'm told it's already too late. Yeah, there's some other good ones. Um, the scariest thing that happened to me is was similar to that. Well, one of, I like went and saw The Ring uh, on my first date ever. And the second <laughs> I got home, this was back before cell phones. And the girl I went with called my house and I answered and she was like, seven days. And I threw the phone against the wall and it broke. And I didn't go on any more dates with her because it was too scary. That's so mean. It was really mean. That is a bold first date move. I mean, it was like high school. I had known her for a while, but I was like, all right, this isn't going to work out. (laughs) All right, Uh, read more. I'll read more. Okay. Oh, I like this one. Someone... At Death Reveals, who goes by the name Prostate Puncher, told us that the scariest thing was the realization that there's a skeleton inside of me that is spooky when you think about it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you guys ever go to like those stores or even museums or something and see skeletons that are, you know, donated to science? Or there's this store in Chicago where you could just buy a human skeleton for like twelve hundred dollars. And it's like, oh, so my bones are worth twelve hundred dollars and this is someone's crazy yeah i went to what's that museum in philly that's like 
all medical anomalies, like donated heads and donated fetuses and stuff. Yeah, I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember the name of it because I don't spend a lot of time in Philly. Oh, well, I went there and it was pretty spooky. It was really weird to see actual parts of human bodies just on display in such a weird way. I don't know, just to, to Is the bodies exhibit so- still running? Is that something that's still... They did that everywhere. So, yeah, I mean, I'm so sure it must somewhere be. It's, it's like running. tours all the time. Yeah, I mean, I saw that like in South America. And I wonder if like it makes it like less scary that it's scientific. You know, like I remember being in my science lab um, biology in college and saw like we had to learn about the human brain, right? So we were, there was a human brain like in formaldehyde inside a jar. And it was just like, the re- I mean, really creepy just sitting there at the front of the classroom as like I was, you know, filling out this test. And I was like, this is a brain that used to have, like, a lot of feelings and thoughts and actions and it has a whole story to it. And I don't even know anything. It's just labeled, like, QZ or something. <laughs> yeah, I think it, what freaked me out is when I stood next to a glass case and the skeleton was the same size as me, like, the same height. And so it was, like, looking in a weird skeleton mirror. And that's when it kind of, like, hit me and I decided I wanted to leave now. Yeah. <laughs> But you just made me think of something which, like, my okay, so my father um, ended up at the end of his life, like, having his leg amputated, and then he donated it to science, and I wonder, like, what what did they do with it? You know, like, mm. where did, I mean, it's great that he gave it to science, but what, where is it? Like, is it still around? Is it in some classroom somewhere? Like, what happens, you know? What happens when you donate your body? Or It'd be body interesting parts? to try to track down his leg. <laughs> Very morbid, but... I wonder if you even can, or if there's probably, like, an anonymity, like, privacy issues, even though it's, like, you're related to him. I bet they kind of strip it of, like, identifying information. Yeah, probably. Possible, yeah. yeah. But, yes, that's super weird to think about. Yeah. Um, Somebody else wrote, Nick Martin wrote, I got stuck upside down on a fairground ride without a safety harness, just a bar across. I had to balance across the bar to stop going face first into the gears that were right in front of my head. Terrifying. That does sound terrifying. <laughs> that is. This is my favorite one, and it comes from Noisy, our sister blog, all about music. We still don't know when the new Kanye album is dropping, and if that's not a nightmare, what is? <laughs> Agree 100%. Also, I don't know when the Drake album's coming out either. It's horrible. Yeah. We're just... Like losing sleep over this. Yeah. I'm gonna tell my story of the scariest thing that ever happened to me because I've been thinking about it. And I was at home alone. I was like maybe like 12 or 13. And the house I grew up in is a log cabin in the middle of the woods, so it's already kind of a spooky setting. And I was, you know, like chatting on MSN Messenger, obviously. And my dog went to the top of the staircase and was just kind of like looking alarmed and sort of sniffing around which he he did a lot because we lived in the woods and then the stereo system in the living room suddenly turned on by itself full blast like the loudest setting possible and it scared the hell out of me because even if there was like some kind of timer or like i don't know the power flickered or something to cause it to turn on nobody would have ever had it that loud when they turned it off and so it really freaked me out so i had to like steal myself to run down and turn it off and then run back upstairs and tell all my friends on MSM what just happened. <laughs> Did they believe you? Probably not. <laughs> I feel like that stuff happens less often these days because, like, Technology ghosts don't. Yeah, <laughs> ghosts don't know how to use new technology. They like don't. They're know gonna how to catch get on. Yeah. 
Because you don't have like old school speaker systems anymore. You have like Bluetooth speaker systems that like don't even ever work. So yeah. uh, no sound ever comes out of it. So <laughs> <laughs> And if it did, it, I feel like it'd be easier to explain. You're just like, oh, my phone like fucking a, yeah, like, exactly. hooked up like, to oh, it. Something oh, well. else. Yeah, something happened. But if it's like one of those old wired ones, like how could this possibly happen? Exactly. This is, yeah. What about you, Naima? Did you think of anything scary? Yeah, so <laughs> on that same trip in Taraja, um, after you know this whole six-day death feast, I was like, we need to go somewhere super relaxing. Let's find the most remote beach in the entire island. And so we did. And as we were leaving this remote place in South Sulawesi jungle uh, and getting into a car, we could see multiple wild boar and big with big tusks like running around and snorting and looking at us through their, you know, like, really shiny green eyes and we didn't make it very far until the car started rolling down the hill um, because it was like a a very broken road um, and got stuck eventually and our driver who was completely incompetent and just like really nervous all the time was like you need to go get help there is no cell phone reception here Um, so there was no way to get help because this was a town that had like nobody it was a fishing um, town so everybody at night just went back to their hometowns and uh my boyfriend Aaron and I ended up walking back to where we started like in the dark with uh, an iPhone um and big stick that we found on the ground just like swinging it everywhere in case these animals and I just had ACL surgery so like I can't run you know and so it spooked the crap out of me like I just I thought you could yeah you'd hear them snorting and they were just like right behind us and I thought like now I'm gonna have to sign up for wilderness survival skills just in case like anything like that ever happens again you know or learn how to drive so I can bring myself up that hill (laughs) wow that's a real scary story that's That's crazy (laughs) Yeah, it was scary. <laughs> it really was. Well, I'm glad you got out. I mean, no, I didn't. I'm kidding. I, you you know, did? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, I'm our podcast guest is a ghost. I'm a ghost. Yeah. Yeah, our podcast ghost. Podcast Ooh. ghost. So I had a story. I, I've already told, like, ten stories, but <laughs> this is the one I was actually thinking about before we started this. This, The other ones kind of reminded me of the other things but i've only gotten sleep paralysis once and i guess for anyone who doesn't know what that is it's when you kind of like wake up but your body doesn't so you can't you aren't able to move uh once you you know open your eyes um and this happened when i was in high school or maybe like my freshman year of college and i was in colonial williamsburg in virginia which is you know like this, the scariest this place scariest. <laughs> Well, that's the thing is we had gone on a ghost tour that night and I had never, ever been on a ghost tour before, like in my life. And it wasn't that scary. I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, oh, this old, like, colonial guy died here and now his ghost, like, makes Johnny Cakes or whatever. (laughs) Um, But then we went back to the hotel and I, like, slept uh, in the same room with my whole family, like, sharing about it with my brother. And uh, I woke up and I couldn't move and I felt like I was getting strangled by something. And I, like, kept trying to scream and then I finally was able to scream and my family was like, what the hell is wrong with you? And I was like, ghost. Ghost got me. Maybe. So Maybe that that's what actually happened. Yeah. yeah, if you never had sleep paralysis before or after, I feel like a ghost is probably a more I'm reasonable saying. explanation. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's the only explanation. I, I have one more scary story that you reminded me of. I'll tell it really quickly because it's a fun one. Yeah. So do you guys remember uh, when Toy Story came out, they made like actual toys of the Toy Story characters, and there was a Woody doll where you like pulled his string and he talked. Yes. So I had that as a kid. And... The thing about it is it would, it would only talk if you pulled the string, except for 
as I eventually learned, when the battery starts to die, it'll just start talking on its own. And it talks slowly and more deeply, and I discovered this because it woke me up in the middle of the night (laughs) on a stormy, like, lightning storm night, sitting across my room saying, You're my favorite deputy. (laughs) Yeah, like, really creepy stuff. I screamed, and my even my parents, I remember, were freaked out. They're like, the battery's just dying. But this is really freaky, so we're just going to put it in the basement. And I never took it out again. That's so good. All right, (laughs) we have to get out because uh, we have a screening in this room in a minute. But we're done anyways, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, Luckily, we planned really well this week. So uh, if you're listening to this, it will still be before Halloween. So tell us your scary stories. Um, We are at letters at motherboard.tv. And you can... Uh, follow along with fear week all next week all in your head it's called uh thank you so much naomi for being here and kaylee you should actually finish this since sorry (laughs) no i just i I wanted to take over but i jason is just used to his job anyway thank you for listening please check out all of our spooky stories coming next week on all in your head and thanks a lot stay cool stay spooky bye-bye